dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, untap, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. I am sharing another webinar I attended. This one was sponsored by the Wine Scholar Guild and discussed the wines of Georgia. The Republic of Georgia is known as the cradle of wine and the birthplace of wine. The first wine was made over 8,000 years ago in this region. Today, there are over 500 grape varieties and 29 appellations. I hope you enjoy the conversation and let me know if you've had tried any of the wines discussed in the webinar. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you'll know that many ask for Patreon. We do not plan on doing this, but we do ask you to support the podcast by leaving a review. It only takes a few seconds of your time, but means so much to the show. The next best way to support the Explorer in the Wine Glass is to tell your friends. If you enjoy the podcast, your wine-loving friends will too. Finally, don't forget to head to the website, exploringthewineglass.com, to read the blog and sign up for the newsletter so that you can keep up on all of the happenings. Slancha! Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, Somme Day service, champagne and Cote d'Iron specialist, and a WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hi, everyone. We are so glad that you are here, and we're joined by two amazing hosts that I'll introduce in just a few moments. My name is Sharon. I'm part of the Wine Scholar Guild team, a specialty program. And for those of you that might not know about Wine Scholar Guild, we were founded in about 2005. And we're the leading global provider of specialized certifications uh, on wine, specifically France, Italy, and Spain, with some master programs tied in there. You can do these courses either in person or online. Just visit winescholarguild.com to learn more about us. We also do immersive study tours, which uh, some hands-on and some great folks lead those. Andrew's led a few of them in the past. Uh, and we also have memberships, and memberships afford you that opportunity to get free webinars every single week from our Masters of Wine, uh, leading winemakers, wine producers, distributors, and some hot topics. Recently, Andrew just led the conversation on typicity. So again, great opportunity, great organization, especially for a wine student or a wine uh, aficionado. A little bit first about our two host today. So Sarah needs no introduction. Neither of them need an introduction. We met Sarah two weeks ago for our first um, webinar on the wines of Georgia. Sarah became a master of wine in 2008 after 10 years of working in sales and sourcing and education. Uh, she founded at also at 2008, a strategic consulting and communications business called Swirl. If you're not already participating in Swirl. She's an author, uh, speaker, wine judge, and she has regular routine articles in the Swirl.com site. So definitely check her out on Swirl. Um, and 
Joining her today is our very own academic advisor, Andrew Jefford. Andrew is, I love this quote, the wine writer's wine writer. And if you are not familiar with any and all of his books, uh, from the New France to most recently, Drinking with the Valkyries, uh, published in 2022, uh, he writes frequent articles for Decanter, um, The Guardian, Financial Times, and he's also the co-chair of the Decanter World Wine Awards. Uh, as our academic advisor, Andrew provides strategic advice on our development plans education wine creators and communicators of the industry. By handing over to Andrew, Andrew, <laughs> tell us about how you discovered Georgia, your take on Georgia, etc. Sure. Well, uh, I first went to Georgia back in 2013. Uh, it was actually a super important visit for me. It was almost like, you know, a pilgrimage. Um, over the previous few years, I've been reading a lot of the works of Patrick McGovern. Some of you may know his books, Uncorking the Past, uh, Ancient Wine. He's uh, the leading researcher, really, into ancient residues in pots, and in particular, those that have bearing on alcoholic beverages. So he's, I guess, the world's leading expert in, in the, the, the very early days of alcoholic beverages. And through his work and his books, uh, we knew that the cradle of wine, broadly speaking, was somewhere in Georgia, in Anatolia, in the Near East, down into to, to, um, present-day Iran and so on. At that stage, when I went in 2013, we, we didn't have the two discoveries that have subsequently been made in Lower Cartley, which really proved that um, the earliest ever residues of pure wine, in other words, wine without resin or without other things added to it or without... Um, uh, alcoholic, um, without alcohol being, um, as it were, fermented from other things other than grapes. The earliest pure residues we have do come from these two villages in Lower Cartley, and they date back 8,000 years. So I was really keen to, to, to get to Georgia, as I say, it was almost like a pilgrimage for me. I discovered, ah, three things really. I mean, the first was a a culture of enormous richness, a wine culture of enormous richness, almost 500, over 500 indigenous varieties. And of course, the, the use of clevery fermentation methods, which really go back as far as we know, as far as wine culture itself does in Georgia. So in a way, tasting traditional Georgian wine is, is like time travel. I mean, I went to Tbilisi and Kakheti in 2013, but I also felt I was going back thousands and thousands of years. That was one thing. Another thing I discovered was that it, it's not just a historical curiosity, of course. Um, there's lots of contemporary winemaking in Georgia. And I discovered aromas and flavors that were unique and compelling that, and that you won't really find anywhere else. And of course, we'll, we'll have a chance to talk all about that a bit later when we do some tasting together. And I suppose the third source of amazement was on that and subsequent visits, because I've been back uh, four or five times since, was the way in which wine is really embedded in national life in Georgia. Um, I think 8% of the agricultural land in, in Georgia is devoted to vines. France only has 3.23% by comparison. Uh, I remember when I went there the first time, the vine leaf was the symbol of the Ministry of Agriculture. They have changed it subsequently, but that was true then. And of course, the, you know, the famous grapevine cross, St. Nino's cross, as it's called, a symbol of the Georgian Orthodox Church 
you know, involves grapevines, that this cross is actually made of grapevines. There's a story behind all of that. Uh, monasteries are still significant wine producers in in uh, in Georgia. And I, when I went there, I didn't just meet winemakers. I also met Bishop uh, Metropolitan Bishop David of Alaverdi. And I just want to read out a little quote, uh, something he said to me at the time, because it has bearing on this third point. I'm quoting now. In the Georgian countryside, he said, having a vineyard is like having a house. It's something you couldn't live without. I grew up in Tbilisi, he said, in a flat, but my parents used to bring grapes in from the countryside and make their own wine in barrels on our balcony. Many people do this without realizing why they're doing it. Um, and, you know, this, this is absolutely amazing. And I then discovered, in fact, that, that when you looked at the statistics uh, for wine production in Georgia, most Georgian wine is actually made by private citizens at home by people literally making wine in barrels on balconies, up to 80 million litres a year, almost twice as much as the official production. So in many, many ways, Georgia really is wine central. Uh, and even though it's it's still finding its way back into global appreciation, um, finding its way towards articulating a wine culture with the sophistication uh, that we're familiar with in France or Italy and California, uh, of course, it's slightly been a victim of its own geography. It, it finds itself in a, a difficult neighbourhood over the last 150 years, and of course, a, a victim of the history that's followed on all of that. This really is wine central, and and I believe the wine world needs to cherish it and help it on its way. Help it on its way. And Sarah came up with a very good phrase last last time on our last webinar. She she called it the baby phoenix, and I really like that phrase. It is a phoenix in that it's rising again from the ashes of all the, the, the traumas of the last 150 years. But it is a baby. It's still finding its way forward. We all know that you only get to do wine once a year. Needs time, all of these things. Uh, but it is definitely moving its way forward with great determination and rapidity. Uh, and, you know, it's always a privilege and a pleasure to be there. And it's it's a place that really holds... Um, uh, a, a real it's it's really very dear to my heart when I think about the wine world Georgia wine central it's the place <laughs> anyway Sarah take us back Thank down you, to Andrew Earth. and and um, I one of the things I do is I advise the producers in the National Wine Agency of Georgia and I would just like to say that you're like a superhero in Georgia they are so appreciative of the sympathy and the sensitivity you have for their culture and so thank you for being with us today and, and for your open mind and consideration for exploring the wines. So I'm going to do a very quick recap on the context for Georgia. Some of this we did cover in more detail last week. I'm going to whiz through today because we really want to spend some time talking about the wines. I appreciate that not all of you have been able to source wines. We'll talk about that in a few moments, about the reasons for that in a few moments. But we're going to still use the wines as like jumping off points for talking about particular aspects of Georgian wine, such as grape variety, winemaking methods and terroirs and so on. So where is Georgia? As Andrew said, it's in a, well, in some ways a difficult neighbourhood. In some ways, though, a blessed neighbourhood. I mean, this is a place of grace when it comes to nature. Everything grows here. But it is surrounded by large and historically covetous, and in fact, still covetous neighbours. So Russia to the north, Turkey to the southwest, and then Armenia and Azerbaijan to the um, south and east. 
And the topography of Georgia is really worth looking at. So you see this huge range of the Caucasus Mountains to the north. And this is what protects Georgia from the cold, harsh weather to the north, and then also shelters Georgia from the more extreme weather coming from the south. So Georgia is a place where everything grows. As um, someone I know, um, Lisa Granick once said to me, she said it's, it was like Florida for Russians, you know, <laughs> it has this really benign climate, but actually a, a temperate benign climate of warmth, sun, but also nuance. And the main thing to bear in mind with Georgia is that there are two very different climatic regions and the center of the country here is it's pretty much divided between east and west by this land bridge. And to the east, this is the warmest, sunniest part of the country. And you can see this wide valley opening out to the southeast where you have warmer, um, warmer influences coming from um, Iran and um, the Arabian um, Peninsula, moderated by the proximity to the sea, the uh, Caspian Sea. Um, and then to the west, you have a much more verdant, hilly, sort of um, temperate climate, much higher rainfall, higher humidity, and the climate here is really moderated and tempered by the proximity of the Black Sea. And this, this diversity in um, terroir, this split in the topography, really explains the enormous diversity that's to be found in Georgian wine styles. So very diverse climatic zones, but generally summers are warm and sunny, winters are cool to cold with snow in some zones. So there's ski, there's ski resorts in Georgia. I will share this as I said afterwards, but essentially this goes into a little more detail, but you get the idea. Annual precipitation in the east, 300 to 800 millimeters in the west, 500 to 1000 millimeters a year of uh, rain so you get the um the idea that you've got two very different climates here and we're going to be talking about wines from these in, influenced by these different climates just a little bit on the regions wine is grown all over georgia and there are officially designated regions the biggest by far in terms of production is kakheti 70 percent of georgian wine is actually white uh, 30% is red, although the reds are starting to creep up. Kakheti is really the home of the most powerful Georgian wines, powerful reds from Saparavi, and wonderful amber wines from Katateli, Mutsvani, Kakuri, Kisini, Kikvi. Every region has its own specialised clutch of regional grapes. And what you will find is that the grape varieties over here in the West are all characterised by thicker skins um, and um, naturally fresh acidity and of course they're adapted to the higher humidity here. Something that the latest research has shown is that these Georgian grape varieties, which are the enormous treasure of Georgia, really are a kind of bridge genetically between the wild vine and cultivated vine. And so this is, I think, although Georgian heritage, the crevry is really captivating, the great treasure of Georgia is this almost beautiful cul-de-sac of amazing vinifera varieties which are not found anywhere else um, and we're going to be exploring and talking about some of them today. Um, 
this is a little bit about Kaketi and just to go into into the sort of the redevelopment of the Georgian wine culture. So Georgia in the 1800s had um, a flourishing of its first sort of fine wine aspirational culture. We'll be talking about that when we taste some of the wines. But then under the Soviet Union, although Georgia was producing an enormous amount of wine, the wine industry, well, it, it, it was heavily industrialized and homogenized. But despite that, they've made very rapid progress in the last um, 20, 30 years in really rediscovering and retracking their terroir. And you can see that even in this, so this is a map of Kakheti, the main region to the southeast. And this topography will actually be very familiar to students of wine. We've all seen these before, mountain ranges, faults, different exposures, the proximity to the river, the different aspects giving these very distinctive terroirs, which are then expressed through different wines. So these are just some of the most famous in Georgia denomination or Appalachian wines. And um, we're going to be talking about some of these as we go through and taste as well. Very diverse um, terrain. So the slide, two slides back was a picture of Kaketi, which slowed this high plateau, but flat vineyard with the major caucuses, the majestic caucuses as a background. Here we have a few clips of other vineyards in other areas. So Cartley, where we're going to be trying wines from this producer, Mukrani, today. Cartley's in the center of Georgia. Moving west of Cartley, we, this is a typical vineyard of Imereti. You see this patchwork, densely wooded, very lush and green, almost sort of subalpine feel. Further west of all, you're getting into Guria. So this is towards the Black Sea climate. They grow tea in this area. So it has that kind of richness and lushness. And then this is all the way down right in Mesketi, which is on the border with Turkey. And you can start to see this rather epic, uncompromising sort of stony landscape. So it's really Multum in Parvo, Georgia. Um, this is Racha Lehumi, which is right up in the north. It these wines from these areas are becoming slightly more commonly exported, but not as available as the wines from Kaketi and Kartli. There's an enormous diversity of Georgian grapes. And Andrew, I know you share my excitement about frolicking through and discovering these. Um, we're going to be tasting some of them in a moment. And I mean, I just think for me, the thing I find the thread that runs through Georgian native grapes is that you can tell this is a culture that's obsessed with food. Um, they often remind me of, you know, the Italian kind of balance that you get in that the, they have texture, the aromas tend to be on the back palate, you know, they, they have a slightly sort of sitting back quality and they're really interested in texture and freshness. Um, and although there are still three main varieties that dominate production, which is Ricazzatelli, Saparavi, and um, Mutsvani, all of these varieties on here, for example, are now being made commercially. And there are many more of the 500 that have been restored and are being made commercially. So. It, it's it's like being present almost the rebirth of a of a wine nation when you go to Georgia and uh, this for me is one of the most exciting parts about exploring Georgian wine. 
And I think it's just worth bearing in mind that the Iron Curtain came down and we were separated from this incredibly rich culture and the culture itself was squeezed and restricted. I was talking to a young a Georgian wine professional, a young woman when I was last there, and she said, we just feel that we, we've started to like breathe again. Um, and they're very concerned about current developments in the region, but wine is really seen by Georgians as an expression of their creative um, national sort of benign, it's like a benign nationalism, um, or certainly a kind of resurgence of their expression of their individuality. And I think this figure here, this enormous increase in the number of independent registered wineries. So this is a nation with three and a half million people. It's roughly the size of uh, Scotland. Um, and there are thousands of small wineries as Andrew alluded to, and everyone's a winemaker. And lots of these family wineries and vineyards have been restored and brought back into commercial production. By, the, by their young people. So it's a really thrilling place just to go and visit for what's happening now. Never mind what, what happened 8,000 years ago, important though that was. So we're going to move to talking about the wines and I appreciate that not everybody has the same wines, but I hope we can still make this lively and engaging for you by using the wines to jump off as discussion points for the information on the grape varieties and winemaking techniques. And the it's worth just saying that, as I alluded to, this, this break with the West, that Georgians today even still feel a lot of regret about, you know, Georgians feel that they look West, even though they have one foot in Asia, and in fact, when you go to Tbilisi or Georgia, isn't it? Sometimes, Andrew, you walk down one street and you could be in Vienna, and you turn a corner, and and you could be in somewhere in Asia. You turn another corner, and it's sort of you know Soviet brutalist architecture. It's enormously varied. But for the Georgians, after the Russian economic sanctions of two thousand and six the Georgian wine industry was nearly eradicated. Well, that was Putin's aim. He wanted to bring them to heel. Um, but it, that was the inflection point at which the industry in Georgia realized we have to basically build new markets. Um, but until that point, something like 99% of Georgian wines were exported to Russia and the former Soviet Union. So really, We've only known about them for a matter of decades, and it takes time to build these distribution networks. So this is why the availability of certain of, of Georgian wines is quite fragmented. You'll have some brands in some states, some wines in some states, but not others, etc. But thank you all for your time in coming and paying them attention, because this is all the kind of buzz and consideration that helps to build their markets, because we buy the wines they want to make. So with that, we can um, discuss the wines. I've got a picture of the wine so people can see the see the bottle. I know you wanted to say something about the packaging as well, Andrew, but um, 
Do you want to take us through this wine? Um, just to say, by the way, if, if any of you have the wine itself, the very wine we're looking at, or the, the same wine, but perhaps a different vintage, and you want to actually comment as we're tasting, please feel free to do that in the chat box. Um, that'd be great. And if you have which you would like to address or talk about, perhaps if you want to put that in the Q&A box and then when we finished our, our our tasting, we can we can take a look at what you've managed to find and what you've managed to, <laughs> to taste with us. So that way we can try and accommodate um, everything that we, we have. Okay, so I've just uh, poured a glass of this first wine, Gorule Mustvane. Uh, Mustvane, the word just means green, um, and there are at least three, perhaps more. Sarah can probably correct me on that. Versions seven. Of there you go. <laughs> yeah. Seven greens. Um, yeah. uh, but but two are very famous. This is one of the famous ones. The other one is the Cajeti version. There's also a Rahuli version that I've tried, and probably Sarah's tried all the rest too. Uh, they are actually completely separate varieties, or I believe they are. Certainly, the Guruli one and the and the Cajeti one are completely separate varieties. Yeah, and the they're all they're all completely separate um, genetically. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so there we go. Uh, and this is a wine made by Chateau Mukhrani, um, top producer. Uh, you saw the beautiful Chateau. It's it's one of the sort of you know, the, the slightly uh, old aristocratic producers, um, lovely estate, um, sometimes uh, owned by uh, foreign capital, sometimes owned by Georgian capital. Um, but I, I'm, you know, thoroughly behind uh, that development as just as much as the sort of indigenous uh, small producer um, element that we've heard a lot about, because Georgia really needs both if it's going to move forward. And this is a wine made in what we could call the international style. It's not made in Kerevri or anything like that. Uh, like about 90%, I believe, Sarah, of, of uh, Georgian wine, it's made in what we could call uh, an international or a, uh, a contemporary style rather the than Georgians the then call it classical. Classical, <laughs> there we are. Yeah, by which they mean not, not Kerevri. Yeah. <laughs> and again, you know, I think that's very important for several reasons. First of all, that Wines like that are most intelligible for new consumers to come to terms with, whereas new consumers are sometimes a little befuddled or um, bamboozled by, by the February versions. That's one thing. The other thing I think it's quite important to say is that, you know, you saw from what Sarah just said, this huge range of, of grape varieties. That, and we're still discovering most of them. I mean, most of the wines are produced from four varieties at the moment. Uh, okay, we've got the that that one I think is is coming the to be to be to be not coming in a minute uh, approach or the classical approach is that you can actually get the varietal character coming through quite clearly in a way that you don't often don't or at least and you, you won't unless you're a very experienced taster find that in a every style somebody who's interested in what Georgia's wonderful patrimony of great varieties have to offer. I think the classical style is the best way to approach that. Anyway, let's taste this wine. Well, <clears throat> I love this wine. Uh, beautiful, fresh, pristine, almost crystalline character it has. As, as Sarah said very wisely again a little bit earlier, often with um, Georgian varieties, the aromatics are really on the palate as much as on the nose. But this does have some 
genuinely knows perceived aromatics. I don't know how we would say a, a smell of spring plants, something like that, a subtle yes. floral quality, uh, the, the, the smell of uh, running water moving through a forest, something like that. All quite subtle and understated, but definitely it's there. And then you find that really amplified on the palate. Those floral perfumes come out actually quite clearly on the palate. Uh, what flowers? I don't know. Freesias, honeysuckle, something like that. Delicate yes. notes. Yeah, it is. It's um, but Mutsfani is one of the most almost um floral and expressive of in an aroma of of all the Georgian varieties, and is all the Mutsfanis are are expressive in this way, even though they're technical varieties, and it's like it's become a catch-all word for. Oh, that's the aromatic white variety of that region, you know. So we'll call yeah. it Mutsfani. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know whether it's just my word association, but I do sometimes find, especially with the other Mutsfani, what um we could talk about, um, it reminds me a little bit of of um Gruner Veltliner, that kind of slightly more um yeah, expressive floral, um, aromatic. Um yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, delicate fruits, I mean, perhaps a bit of apple fruit, pear fruit, green grape, something like that. And then just a little sort of speckle of a stone dust at the end. Um, but really wonderful control and definition and purity. Uh, I, I don't recall when I first went to Georgia tasting wines like quite like this, made with this level of um, focus and, and uh, pristine purity. And that's something quite new in the classical style. And I'm really happy to see it. Patrick Honef, who makes this wine, is very adept winemaker. Um, and also, perhaps we should also speak here, Sarah, about the, the Guruli style. Uh, the fact yes. that this is from Kartli. Uh, yeah. You know, Sarah <coughs> spoke a little bit earlier about um, the sort of ridge in the middle of the country. I think it's called the Licky Range. Yes, which is in fact the watershed between um, between the Black Sea uh, and and uh, is it the Sea of Azov, the other side? Um, yes, the, the two big seas, anyway. Seas. Oh, and the Caspian. I think it's the Caspian. The Caspian, Caspian yeah, the Caspian. Yes. So, so it's it's a real hinge in the whole of the Caucasus, uh, and this wine is actually grown up on that hinge, a little bit cooler, so you don't get the sort of the firmness and the emphatic quality that you'll get in Cajeti wines very often. But but I think what Patrick's captured very well in this wine is the sort of the restraint and the delicacy of it. Uh, and I think if, you know, I don't know what sort of image people have about Georgian wine when they first come to it, but they might think, you know, crikey, this place is almost in Iran, you know, it must be stinking hot and getting this really heavy style or whatever. But But this is completely the antithesis of that, the perfect wine to serve to anybody who has that kind of a stereo, stereotype about what Georgia might be. Well, you know the the people in um, Kartli call the Kaketians. They they you know how people have regional teasing nicknames for each other, and they they call the Kaketians like the donkeys. So like yeah, you know, they're like these. And there's oh, you know, their wines are a bit like that. So that they I mean, there are some wonderful wines being made there, but they're known for this, you know, a certain emphatic quality, big presence, big weight. And that's also the homeland of the really deep, full skin maceration amber wines, Kaketi. And Kartli is the aristocratic 
seat of Georgia. So Cartley puts the cart in Scarvelo, which is what the Georgians call their country. And it's where you had all of the princes and princesses um, of the um, during the Russian Empire um, had their country estates, of which Mukrani was one. And in fact, it's it was restored um, through a public-private partnership, and it's now fully restored. And they hold the most incredibly gorgeous wine festival there every year, which I always find a lot of Italians are at. Nicely enough, so. So and it's always breezy when you go to to Cartley and it's gently hilly. It's green. It's you can see it's much greener than when you go out to Kakheti. And they make these very elegant wines in both whites and reds. Um, and it's become a bit of a hotspot for visits because it's easy to get to from the capital. So you can sign up for a wine tour and you could be there in sort of 30 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. And um yeah, I love showing people this wine because if they've had only Georgian amber wines before and slightly freaked out by them, I I love showing them the delicacy, but yet the succulence of this wine. Mm, absolutely. That's a picture of Garuli Mutsvani, and it always has these little black dots. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so our second wine is, uh, again, classical style uh, and from another distinguished aristocratic estate in fact probably the most uh, distinguished aristocratic estate of all in terms of its some um, sort of imperial past I believe Sarah yes uh, yeah so Zinandali so, was the seat of Georgian literary romanticism it was the palace of Alexander Chavchavadze who in the 18th Georgia had this sort of golden period where they were incredibly optimistic um, about their future as a as a as a prosperous and independent nation, and Chavchavadze was an aristocrat, but a very enlightened one. And one of the reasons that he was so keen on establishing um, vineyards is that he'd done a lot of research into agriculture and new methods of agriculture, because as the as the prince and the landowner. He was responsible for the well-being of, you know, the the feudal families who were semi-feudal who were living on his land. Um, but this was a time when they were very influenced by the new ideas of romanticism and the nobility of man. Um, you know, that were those ideas that were doing rounds at the time. Um, and around this time, so this is the late eighteen hundreds, was when you had a big influence from France coming into Georgian winemaking via the influences of the Russian court. Because although Georgia would every now and again sort of try and leave the, the kind of the orbit of the Russian imperial network, the powerful Georgian princes at the time had all grown up with the Russian princes. So they were all sort of quite matey. And they were the Georgians were always being forgiven for for you know agitating for independence. So um, anyway, this was the time. So Sinandali, I've got a picture of it a bit later, which shows the estate was really at the time one of the most innovative, quality driven estates. And Sinandali is in Kakheti, 
Um, it's on the, the bank of the Alizani River. I can flip back at the end and show you exactly where it is on the map, but it's a really great terroir. It's gentle, very sort of undulating or even flat land, but very nice terroir for both um, white and red grapes. And it gave its name to the most famous Georgian white, which traditionally is a blend of um, Ricazzatelli and Mazzvane. The reason I thought it'd be nice to try this is because this palace has now been completely restored, again, in a public-private partnership. The prince lost everything because he had to sell everything to rescue his wife and daughter who had been ransomed by the barbarians. Anyway, you can see I've got I've gone down a rabbit hole with this, can't you? But anyway, it's been restored. The vineyards are all chateau-style around the restored estate, and you can even go and stay there and swim in the pool. Um, but... I know that's not necessarily <laughs> pertinent to the wine, but um, anyway, very yeah. sort of lovely, fresh, but succulent style of wine. Yes, um, I mean, su succulent's the word. It's it's a real contrast to the first wine. Uh, also, it, we should say that it's not actually 100% an estate wine. I'm sure there's some estate fruit in it, but it's actually a, quite a, a complex blend of different varieties, as you can see from, from uh, Sarah's notes. And it also comes from several different regions. It doesn't just come from Kakheti. Uh, it also comes from further west, uh, Imereti, I believe, as well, some of the components in the wine. So it's it's very much um, a sort of cross-regional pan-Georgian uh, blend. Um, and once you, I mean, you can see by the color, you won't be able to see particularly, uh, oh, you probably can. It, you can see it's quite a gold wine. It's a deeper colored wine than the first wine we had. Um, when you sniff, well, what should we say? It's much more sort of Southern in style. You can sense the, the warmth creeping in there. There's some oak influence there, I think, as well. Um, sometimes it, I mean, I don't necessarily like doing this, but sometimes it's quite useful to have some analogies from elsewhere. So if you could sort of imagine a cross between White Hermitage and White Chateau Neuf du Pape, in a way, it, it smells a little bit like that. Very structured, very broad aromas, quite niche. <laughs> The smell of, uh, I don't know, chestnuts, honey, things like that. Um, definitely got plenty of aroma on the nose. You don't have to just wait until you get it on the palate before you get that aromatic style. And then on the palate, very rich. I mean, there's some residual sugar in there. Mouth-filling, mellow, uh, autumnal. Uh, there are some tannins, even though it's not a Clevery wine at all. But I, I can pick up some of that on my tongue. So definitely quite thick textured white. Very much late summer fruit. Um, yeah, absolutely, Jim. Yes, that's absolutely right. It does, um, if you want an analogy. And then flavor-wise, we're talking about, you know, apricot, honeydew, melon, things like that. But it does have fresh grape acidity to keep it, which works very well with the light tannins to give it um, balance and poise. Uh, so, I mean, perhaps, you know, texturally, think Rhone, but almost in flavor. Some of you may know Pacherank down from southwest France, it's sort of a bit more like that than I would say on, on the palate than it is some um, Rhone, perhaps. Uh, very unique, lots of complexity. So, I mean, sometimes very complex blends, you almost think, oh, what's the point? You know, all those great varieties in there, and it is not very complex. This one really is quite complex. Uh, the, the blenders work well. I'd love to know from the winemakers if they went through lots of trials before arriving at this particular blend. Sarah, you wouldn't happen to know that. Yeah, I've, I've been there and um, I've spoken to the winemaking team and 
Um, yes, they did. Um, I think the aromatic profile of this wine really is marked by um, this variety here, Kirvi, which is one of the most, most gloriously intense, flavorful Georgian varieties. Um, I know what you mean, Andrew, about being cautious at saying, oh, it's like the Georgian version of such and such. But I think because I mean, all of these great varieties are so new, I, I'm kind of at peace with it. And the Georgians don't seem to mind when you say things like, oh, it's almost like a cross between like um, Viognier and, you know, Marsan or something. You know, it's Hivi it has got real um, almost extravagance, but yet um kind of a, a, a deepness a depth as well um and then solicari and tetra as you say are the varieties from from the west um solicari has lovely crackling crunchy acidity and tetra is also known for this sort of very almost like you know those green plums that you get um in um in that part of the world turkey and georgia really crunchy green plums tetra is considered to have that kind of fruit character but i know that they did they i mean this style of wine cross-regional blend not amber although it's had a bit of a little bit of skins you know just four days and with this blend of varieties this is a really quite a new style. It's like the Georgians are realizing they can kind of have some fun. And I'm a big fan of this kind of style because I think it's all part of the Georgians having the confidence to play with all of these resources, to, you know, to start using this palette again. Um, and I think it's very important that they can take what they have and keep renewing and refreshing it um you know for for today's consumer so just because the conventional blend was sinandale ricatelli and mitzvane there's no reason at all that you shouldn't have a play and see what um see what works with um with other varieties so um i do have a real soft spot for this wine and it's actually what i think of as a good kind of winter white you know it's got that kind of extra richness and and just a lovely contrast to the mukrani uh Mustvane, Guruli Mustvane, which is so pristine and delicate and ballerina-like. This is, as, as Sarah says, much more statuesque. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and I just wondered, so this is where Sinandali is. Um, so this is the denomination of Sinandali. Um, <coughs> so this is where this palace is located. Oh, that's the restored palace. Isn't it cute? It just looks like a kind of fairy house. <laughs> you can imagine sitting out on the balcony there on long summer evenings. It's heaven, honestly, the gardens. You really, and this was, but he had visitors from all over the world entertained here. And then during the Civil War, it had bullet holes and stuff in it. And this is, you know, but the palace has been restored. The the winery is, is brand new and at the back and it's um but it's all very beautifully done but the whole park is a national monument but they're working vineyards um, and in many other countries that would be a bit of a naff tourist attraction but actually i'm sure you found this andrew when you went for georgians lots of very serious wine businesses have really lovely enotourism and it's part of their their business model because they really want to get people there 
Okay, so you've got the um, Tibulvino Mitzvane, I believe. Uh, yes, I have. Um, let me just get that up off the floor. Yes, here it is. Uh, it's kind of difficult to get the label into the into the into focus, but anyway, I'll pour the wine. Uh, so this is Mustvani from Kakuri, of course. This this again is a wine which has really a lot of aroma. Uh, you don't have to wait to the palate and go searching on the palate. It's it definitely comes out and meets you uh, once you get your nose into the glass. Um, packed with sort of hedgerow fragrance. Uh, you know, again, it sort of reminds me rather of um, of Northern Rhone, not definitely Northern Rhone this time, and and something with Yonier in and a bit of Condria, that sort of apricot, floral apricot charm, uh, definitely on the nose, but very different to the last wine on the palate, much less, well, really, I mean, in terms of weight, it's between wine one and wine two, um, mid-weight, I would say, um, lovely fresh structuring acidity to it, Lots and lots of Mayflower and white flower perfumes, uh, a lovely juicy grainy mid palate. Um, uh, you know, just a, a, because this wine will be produced, I think, in quite large quantities. Uh, Sarah, is that right? Yes, it is. Um, I really respect and admire this this producer. It was established by uh, two brothers in the late nineteen nineties. And it's just worth recapping and bearing in mind that when the Soviet Union was broken up in 1991, although there was a great sense of sort of um, joy in Georgia that they were establishing themselves as a, an independent country, actually the state just, imagine the state just disappearing overnight. Um, and it was extremely tough times. Um, you know, the, the banks ran out of money or, you know, people's savings were wiped out overnight. Salaries weren't paid. There was no heating. And then, of course, there was civil, um, well, a, a civil war. Um, but actually, so many of the producers who are doing really well now were founded, sort of scrabbled together by young Georgians who were in their 20s and 30s at that time saying we've got to keep making wine um and Tibulvino um have been really pushing forward with that and I really like their approach I've been to the produce I've been to the winery many times and it's not a sort of a fancy beautiful looking winery like like Mukrani and uh, Zinandali but it's impeccably run um, and they work with both stainless steel um, and sort of classical technology and also Creverie. But from the very beginning, the brothers brought in experts and advisors from Australia, from France, from Italy. They were really outward looking and they wanted to be very Georgian, but not to be solipsistic about it. So very good producer. And in fact, they've in this US, in the UK, certainly they've had a lot of success. So they're now in Marks and Spencers, they're in Waitrose, they're in Majestic, they're in Lathwaite's. And, and that's wonderful for Georgia because we need the wines to be there in kind of in the places where normal people just go and pick up a bottle um, rather than geeks like us who will do anything to, <laughs> to search out the specific thing. Mutsvani is a really good variety. So this is Kakuri Mutsvani, which is the that's funny, um, Kaketi, 
and it does look a little different. You see, it's got this slightly bigger berries compared to the Garuli Matsvani. But again, it has this crisp, quite filigree kind of aroma and perfume to it. It's, it has a precision, but also a breadth. Um, and it makes excellent Crevry wine, skin contact wine, as well as really lovely um, classical stainless steel wine. I've had some time, I've had it where it's been fermented in stainless steel and aged in oak, and I find those less convincing. Whereas Riccatatelli aged in oak, I think can actually be quite nice. Um, as it mentions here, it is an, ar an aromatic variety, but it oxidizes easily. Um, and so that's something I think that they um, also they've got so much better at. Um, but um, yeah, a really, I mean, this that Tibulvino Mutsfane, I think certainly in the UK, you know, it retails at about £11. It's very good value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, terrific value and a great introduction, actually. To Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. That's another one you could show to people and it wouldn't freak them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Unlike... <laughs> and now, a word from our sponsor. Exploring the Wine Glass is brought to you by Dracina Wines. Dracina Wines is an artisan winery located in Paso Robles, California. They have been producing wine since 2013. Their first vintage began with one wine, their classic Cabernet Franc, which received a 91 in Wine Enthusiast. Since then, they have increased production as well as expanded their portfolio, have received many accolades, including multiple double gold medals and consistent 90-plus ratings. Visit their website, www.dracinawines.com, or use the link in the show notes to schedule a private tasting and to see their entire portfolio. Purchase your award-winning wine and let Dracina Wines help turn your moments into great memories. Well, we move to a Crevry wine now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mentioned um, Bishop David, who I met on my first visit a little bit earlier. I, I must just read you what he said to me about Crevry wine, because it's it's very beautiful, and I've often thought about it since. Um, here we go, I'm quoting. God created man from clay. Crevry are made from clay and lie up to their necks in the earth. They give birth to wine like a mother to a child from within and from within the earth. Then the wine's age like a child grows. The whole process is like a prayer. And I then asked him um, whether wine's made in Crevry. You know, I was sort of sniffed a little journalistic quote or two here. So I said, well, you know, a wine's made in Crevry more spiritual than conventionally made wines. I fully agree, he said. But it would be a bit pretentious to say it loudly. Perhaps we can say that wines which have lost their stems and their skins very early are motherless. <laughs> so anyway, lo lovely quotes about Crevry from Bishop David. Uh, and that's but that's actually what they call wine made without um, without the skins. They call it udedo, which okay. means which motherless. Means so oh, motherless. Okay. Motherless. Yeah. Udedo yeah. means motherless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also think, you know, when we come to wines like this, we need to remember that, you know, for me, this is the sixth category of wine. Uh, we have our conventional five categories of wine. We have white wine, we have red wine, we, red wine, we have pink wine, we have fortified wine, we have sparkling wine. But you could add 
amber wine or orange wine, if you prefer, as, as the sixth category, because it's so completely different from everything else. But of course, there are various degrees of difference. And when you begin to taste different Crevery wines, you discover that, that as with red wine, as with white wine, there's a huge spectrum of different stylistic possibilities. Uh, and I think this is this is quite a good introduction, Sarah. Let's see if we can see the color here. Yeah, I mean, you can see the color is is a light gold. It's not a deep amber by any means. It's quite light in in color. And it's it's also relatively delicate in aroma. It doesn't come out and, and shock you. And then in flavor too, you, you, I mean, as soon as you get in the mouth, you can see the textures and you'll be aware of them. Um, you know, the textured dimension to it. But sometimes the aromas of very wines can be very strong. These are quite delicate. I always think with, um, you know, the aromas of, of wines made in February, reg almost regardless of variety, you have to sort of completely change your sort of elusive repertoire, the, the repertoire you're thinking of, and think of things, I mean, for me, umami is often a, a character that you find both aromatically and on the flavor. Um, mushrooms, particularly sort of Japanese mushrooms, uh, and protein. I mean, uh, you know, soya protein, uh, cheeses sometimes, straw, which has had cheese in, those sort of things. Those are things you can often come across in the aromas. And you get that in this wine quite delicately. I mean, it's quite nutty as well, sort of creamy, creamy. The young hazelnuts, which get called uh, cobnuts in, in Britain, very fresh hazelnuts. That's something that that you can smell in this wine too, and then on the on the palate, it's it's a very good introduction to Quivery because it's quite light, quite fresh, quite delicate. You can see the tannins, you can feel the tannins, but they're not heavy, and there, there are no sort of overt, obvious, obviously um, demanding or confronting aromas to it. It's it's all of the things I described on the aroma are there on the palate, but in quite light, delicate, well ordered. And, and brightly focused style. I think that's a really wonderful summary. I mean, I think part of that is down to the great variety. Okay. So this is um, Kisi, which is um, a variety that had nearly um, died, died out in Georgia, but that has become resurgent. It's very much a variety of Kakheti um, and it's, it's late budding it retains its acidity but it um it ripens before ricazzatelli and it just has this kind of lightness but with um a gentle but precise aromatic character um and i often find with amber wines that with kisi it's like they just hold it they're just a little bit more finely etched they have um a delicacy of of texture, but um, basically the way it was brought back is that some old vineyards really that were being grown, you know, by, as you were saying, Andrew, everyone has a plot somewhere. I mean, lots of these kind of, but but basically all this sort of great granddad's plot or great grandma's plot have really come into their own as the rediscovery of these um, varieties and the reintroduction of these varieties has developed. And Tel Aviv is a real, center for um for kisi um it's considered to be a great spot for it and 
it's also made in the classical style so stainless steel fermented and that's when you get these really bright um quite fruity pear and citrus aromas sometimes georgians will say oh this is a bit like our sauvignon blanc i mean in a way it's it's not but they just mean it's this kind of quite nervy bright you know um high toned style without without necessarily having the the weight or the breadth that you can get in Riccatzatelli. And this wine I really like showing to people, especially if they haven't had an amber wine before, because I think there's an idea that all amber wines are basically put there to kind of shock and test you. Um, But this has had full skin fermentation in Quivery for six months, but it's very pure, precise, nicely balanced it's absolutely wonderful with food so it's delicious with sort of a lovely plate of like nuts and and ripened you know creamy um rind cheese that kind of thing um but i think it's a, a nice introduction to to that recovery style do you want to talk about the um the orgo yes well <clears throat> any wine with the name orgo on the label is always a treat uh gogi dakashvili um Really, for me, the, the, the most craftsmanlike of all of the great um, traditional Georgian winemakers, uh, hugely fastidious in his approach. Uh, and, you know, somebody who really stresses always that um, you can't, it's, you know, even though the Kvevri method of making wine is so ancient, you, you, it has to be done with great precision and great care and great, and great um, super, close supervision. Uh, if you're if you're going to avoid any of the disastrous things going wrong in it that can go wrong, yeah. uh, so really a name to look out for if you really want to explore uh, the traditional style. You can see by the colour we have a uh, see if I can get it in the in the focal point. Yeah, much deeper orange here. This is made from Riccatelli, of course. Um, and now all of those things that were just tiny hints in in the previous wine. Suddenly the, the volume has been turned up. Um, lovely, deep notes, beautiful harmony though as well. Nothing coarse at all of, of those things I was going on about Japanese mushrooms and apricots and cheese rind and fermented fruits in general and lovely sort of fresh umami that some of you may know Japanese green tea and the umami notes that has and there's almost that here as well. It's a much more concentrated wine um it's very pure once again absolutely pristine nothing at all sort of musty or or grubby in it at all absolutely impeccable uh, definition and cleanliness to it the tannins are there but they're quite fine i mean you know i've had plenty of curry wines with much richer thicker tannins than this they're quite fine and delicate um they lend this dimension and serious quality uh, and lovely flavor complexity when the wine uh, finishes as well the, the mushrooms the apricots the, the cheese the tofu uh touch of autumn apple as well really beautifully harmonious beautifully drawn lovely precision lovely finesse uh an, a, an absolutely impeccable example of, of the traditional style at its very best so well done goggy as usual <laughs> yeah actually um i have a bit of um when I say a crush, you know, you just admire someone so much. I thought I might yeah. just show you this photo of myself looking adoringly 
at Gogi. So this is <laughs> this is the view from his winery, his family winery. Yeah, he's uh, he's a very modest. He is. He's super modest. That's true. Discreet chap, but um, when you speak to him and you get him to start talking about himself a bit more, you realise he's had the most incredibly influential career so he was a young man in the 1990s he was one of the co-founders of the previous winery of Teliani Valley which they founded in a former garage workshop you know a machine um, car car machine workshop um scrambled it all together with a bit of a wing and a prayer and but he from his 20s started really making what he would call the quivery so notebooks so he said we must keep this going and he did so much research and so many trials working out why quivery had been designed in this way um why they were the shape and the form and the material they were and why you should bother to keep using them and he had also i mean he'd done you know three different types of organic and inorganic chemistry at university in odessa and blah 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 he'd studied at um <coughs> excuse me <laughs> he went on to study at UC Davis you know he's a technical enologist but he um really has been very instrumental in also helping and teaching the generation how to deploy crevery for the aim that they were designed for which is to make very clear stable beautiful not oxidized pure clean wine and he's basically obsessed with hygiene. He's like the tidiest, cleanest person you've ever seen. You could have surgery on his <laughs> Marani floor. But wonderful wine, um, makes a wide range of wines. And this is enormously successful in the UK. And he's also the consultant to Schuckman, which is an enormous winery co-owned with a German investor, which does very good wines, much more sort of broad commercial wines. But yeah, wonderful and I don't have it, so I can't taste it with you, but I know it very well. <coughs> Excuse me. A little bit about Ricazzatelli. So there's more Ricazzatelli planted in Georgia than anything else. And familiarity sort of breeds contempt. But you could think of Ricazzatelli in some ways as a bit like the Trebbiano. <laughs> it has lots of different clones. It has a interaction with completely mediocre anonymous wine but actually lots of winemakers and gogi is one of them says so no you know if you if you work with Ricazzatelli in the right way it's your white it's the winemaker's best friend so it can be made I think it's I love it as a quivery wine I think it's wonderful but also it can be made in stainless steel oak sometimes it's blended with chardonnay quite successfully <coughs> and the the stem is, off, is quite often used, um, especially in Kakheti, because Rakatsateli means red stem. So in a good warm year, when the stem is um, mature, that will actually, they'll be partly dried and then put into the quivery for, for fermentation. <coughs> um, I thought it would be a nice point to say something about quivery winemaking. Is that okay? Um, I hope I'm not um, coughing too much, I, I beg your pardon. So Georgian quivery, as you were saying, Andrew, made of clay, the clay is sourced from specific sites. So you can't just go and pick up any old clay and um, and make it. And in fact, they're starting to control access to the clay because there's a concern about, you know, the demand. Because what's happened with Quivery is that the demand for Quivery 
has soared. When I first went to Georgia about eight years ago, I went to visit one of the Crevery winemakers um, and the difference in, in the intervening years, you know, I go back, he's got now he's got a really nice new car. He's, he's a really keen um, gardener. He has a beautiful landscape garden. Um, and that's all been, that's all sort of expresses and highlights just the huge demand for Crevery. So they're clay. They were designed 8,000 years ago to solve winemaking problems. They're wood fired, so they're not fired in a modern ceramic kiln, which means they don't, they're not fired at um, really high, the high temperatures that you get in a modern kiln, so they're slightly more for, porous. And typically they are lined with beeswax um, to um, reduce the porosity and to make them easier to clean, because it's all about cleaning. Just some, this is some crevry just after they've been fired. Um, so this is a wood fired kiln and um, there's no gauge or thermometer, the crevry makers, of which there are three or four key families whose practitioners have learned the methods from their fathers and grandfathers. I've never met a lady crevry winemaker, but I'm not, maybe there will be one in the future. And then you can see that they're actually installed. This is actually a photograph of creveries being dug in in Plumpton in Sussex in England because they have a crevry cellar there. Um, again, more crevry being installed. Uh, this is Zaza Vilashvili, who, um, who's the crevry maker. And you can see they start a bit like a sausage pot and they're grown up and he'll be making sort of six to eight at the time and they come up and they're made in the cool, wet months of the winter. They're fired in the summer, ready for the new harvest. So there's a kind of seasonality crevry that matches the, if you like, the seasonality of wine. And then typically a Every Mirani will be at ground level, open to the, the air, it must be well ventilated. And then you can see the quivery openings are, are in here. Um, and they're, they're very beautiful spaces. They do have a sense of a sacred space about them. I think with all of these circles and just the, 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 the architecture of these places. And in fact, Georgians told me that Often in difficult times, they couldn't get access to a church. They wanted to do a christening. They would do it in the Marani and that kind of thing, that they would stand in for sacred spaces. And quite often you will read or people will say, oh, Quivery, they're so hands off. Basically, you just throw all the grapes in, seal it up and let them get on with it and open it six months later. In fact, that's not true. Quivery solve a lot of winemaking problems and the practitioners, the winemakers who are using Quivery are really well aware of how, of, of how to use them to achieve that. So the shape of the Quivery with this high shoulder promotes great fermentation kinetics. It also um, assists with um, cap management so that you have a, a, a thin, well um, aerated and easily punched down cap at the top level of the quivery here um you have it says here a, na a natural level of pressing sorry my mouse has become extremely sensitive and then at the end of fermentation as the carbon dioxide stops being produced and the cap and all the sediment falls down here the seeds the grape seeds which are heaviest and contain the most bitter phenols are kept away from the wine in this tip the skins go on top and the fresh 
And the sort of the, if you like, the, the best fraction of the wine is up here. And winemakers use this knowledge in their quivery. So they might just say, I oh, know I'm only using this first level of the fraction and then I'll see what goes on here. I might add some of that back as a kind of press wine. So also control in quivery because they are moderated through contact with the earth. And I think this is the important thing to remember about quivery, that especially and then when they're closed um, and left to age, it's not oxidative, it's reductive. Um, it's a reductive, protective aging that helps to clarify the wine. So 8,000 years ago, when humans were working out, oh, we can make wine, they just didn't, they didn't just want it to be booze, they wanted it to be beautiful and tasty and stable. And I think that's the amazing thing about quivery. Um, so I'm conscious of the time, we, <laughs> we're kind of um, racing through. So um, I'm very happy to answer any more questions about Quivery, either here or as a follow-up. So no problem if you do have any other uh, questions, but we'll move on to the next wine. So you've got the, we've got the unfiltered Saparavi. Yeah. Well, here we go. Uh, you can see that the color is absolutely saturatedly deep. Midnight, midnight deep black red, uh, definitely unfiltered there. Um, yeah, Saparavi, I, I know Sarah's very keen on Saparavi. I'm super keen on Saparavi as well. Uh, Sarah said last week that it was maybe the world's great undiscovered great great red grape variety, and I, I could uh, buy into that too. And I, we should also say that it's, it would be the only one um, uh, of amongst those which actually has red grape juice as well as um, skins. It is a Tanturier variety uh, and um, you probably know Alicante Boucher and one or two others in, in Western Europe, but this is really the great one in that style. Uh, and this is, a, a again, from Tilliani, a wonderful introduction to the style. It's straightforward. It's exuberant. It gives you all of the, the generosity and the excitement of the variety in, in sort of fairly unsophisticated but beautifully, cleanly delivered style. So you, you get this wonderful dense colour. You've got sense of blackberry and plum and dug earth in the autumn, very exuberant, very appetizing. And then when you sip it, well, <clears throat> you'll certainly notice the tannin, but the tannins are actually very soft. They're not hard or brutal at all. Ample textures. It's probably much fresher on the palate than you expect from the nose because you get all this sweet fruit on the nose and you think, gosh, that'll be ripe. But in fact, it isn't enormously ripe. It's only 13 and a half and it's very fresh and bright with um, with its acid balance. And also, you know, the, the, the sort of things I was describing on the nose, the blackberry and the plum, those are very sweet fruits. Once it comes onto the palate, it, it may remind you more of sort of elderberry or even rosehip or something like that. Some sort of wild but fresh uh, hedgerow style fruit. Um, I think another thing with with uh, Saparavi, although I don't find it so much in this wine, perhaps in one of the wines we'll come to in, in a minute or two, there's a sort of fascinating, exotic, uh, sort of incense-like note to the fruit as well, which has nothing to do with wood. I mean, very often when you come across incense notes in um, Western European wines, it's to do with the oak aging. That's not true at all here. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure this wine has any um, oak aging. It seems to me completely clean and steel fermented. Is that right, Sarah? 
If it's you've got the unfiltered, is it Saparavi yep. or Saparavi unfiltered? It's Saparavi unfiltered, it says. There's a little bit of oak aging, okay. yes, but right. it's, well, it's, anyway. um, it's not new oak. It certainly um, doesn't get in the way. And then yeah. at the very end of the palette, it, you know, finally it just turns a bit more savoury, uh, despite all the fruit. Uh, so just a super satisfying, enormously generous uh, red wine. I mean, sometimes I think that Saparavi could almost be described as the beast from the east. Um, <laughs> but, but this one isn't very beastly. It's very friendly. Yeah. It's um, It's got its arm around you. It's... Um, you know, you can tickle its tummy and it, it, won't, it won't come and bite you. It's absolutely delicious, friendly, welcoming Saparavi. Yes. Um, you're right. I am obsessed with Saparavi. I think it's one of the greatest grape varieties that most people haven't heard of yet. Um, and it's increasing in plantings in Georgia, but also I've seen it increase in plantings in other parts of the world. So King Valley in Australia... There's some Saparavi being trialled in um, uh, Montalcino. It's up in... And uh, by the way, Hugh Hamilton in McLaren Vale, they make some terrific a range of Saparavi. Oh, I haven't tried theirs. Yeah. Oh, you should um, look those out and they're wonderfully labelled too. Yes. Ukraine makes some really delicious uh, Saparavi. And it's, it's the variety I think that Georgians are probably most excited about because, I mean, it, it has... A big personality but there's something still really um um yes you say welcoming about it and it doesn't have like cabernet sauvignon type tannins it has almost cushiony pillowy tannins you know it's it has a really um like almost shag pile texture quite often you know you sort of sink into it i also find it incredibly diverse and versatile some of the really warm terroirs in Kakheti, such as Mukazani um, and Kinsmorali, they can late pick it, they can really get it ripe. And you can make really quite big wines of up to like 14% alcohol. But actually, most Saparavi achieves really great intensity and, and impact, even when it's about 13 to 13.5%. And Georgians will say to you, well, Saparavi is really long-lived, and then you'll say, well, have you got any? <laughs> I can try. And what happened during the Soviet era is because it was this whole transactional wine factory one, wine factory two, that so all, all the factories were state-controlled and just given numbers, and this the, the sophisticated wine culture that you alluded to at the beginning that you will find, say, in France or even Italy, where it's this sense of we need to build our library. How do we get better? Let's go back and taste how the, you know, 2010s are tasting now. Georgia's had to rebuild all of that. So I think we're just starting to see what Saparavi can do. But it's cold, hardy, keeps its acidity. It it can give great quality, even at not particularly low yields um and it it has a lot of genetic interaction with sites so there's a lot of clones that are specific to site which the georgians are really getting excited about and doing different things with and they all used to be quite big and hefty and hulking when i first went there a few years ago but i think also there's a lot more of restraint and confidence in taking the foot off the gas so yeah, Saparavi, it's wonderful. And also, well, when I speak to retailers and importers in the UK who are working with it, they say, do you know what, if you get 
Saparavi Inn, people just love it, you know, it flies off the shelves. So I think it's probably Georgia's great hope. And um, you've got a more, um, oh yes, we've got a more um, sort of uh, nuanced style with the, with the red from Mukrani. Yes, and from Kartli as well, of course, different regions. Yes, yes. Um, I think it's, it's worth saying at this point, very briefly, that um, Kvevri red and Kvevri white are completely different things for the, for the simple reason that Kvevri red is really the way it's produced in the way that all reds are produced. It just so happens to be made in a Kvevri rather than something else. Whereas Kvevri white is, is dramatically different because it's an amber wine. It's not the way in white wine is normally made. Um, it, it, and it's uh, therefore much more, that to me, the sixth category of wine is, is Kvevri white wine, which makes amber wine. Whereas Kvevri red is, is, is a different category. It's, it's produced essentially in the same way as all red wines. It just so happens to be produced that way in a Kvevri. What we've got here is a blend of Saparavi with Cabernet Sauvignon. And as again, I think uh, Sarah pointed out last week, Cabernet Sauvignon has been in you in uh, Georgia for a, a very long time. It's not a not a new variety there at all, not indigenous quite, but almost um, indigenized because it's been yeah. so long. Um, when you sniff this wine, you can definitely sniff uh, the eighteen months in oak. Uh, that that uh, is is an element of the wine on the aroma for sure. But on the palate, I think it, it works really well. It's deep and it's dense. Um, you have this vitality and fruited energy that we spoke about with um, Saparavi a minute or two ago. But, but there's more secondary qualities here. You know, the oak is, is, works very well on the palate, I think, bringing a little refinement, a little more uh, complexity, some savoury notes, a bit more savoury note than, than you saw in the very fruity wine that we began with very complete what's the cabernet bringing perhaps the cabernet is bringing a little bit of central palate wealth because what you tend to notice with the saparavi is you'll notice the tannins on the the first palate when you first sip it and then you'll notice the distinctive fresh forest fresh fruits and vivacity at the end but sometimes it doesn't quite have the flesh of the central palate that, that one might uh, hope for. And the Cabernet Sauvignon, I think, brings that to this particular wine. Um, and then, yeah, lovely, broad, full, complex, almost, you know, a little bit of salty chocolate at the end. Uh, again, perhaps tickled on by the oak there. So uh, a beautiful blend, very different to our first wine uh, and interesting to see Saparavi in a slightly different incarnation. Yes, and there's... There is a PDO for Cabernet Sauvignon in Georgia, which is called Teliani, um, somewhat confusingly, but um, the, it can actually be rather good. I've also had very good um, Quevery Cabernet Sauvignon in Georgia, although, as you say, it's not such a departure mm. from standard red wine making. But yeah, I'm starting to see a little bit more international varieties being planted, especially by the youngsters in Georgia. So I've come across a bit of uh, Syrah, um, um, Sauvignon Blanc, of course, you know, but it's very rare. They're nearly all their own, their indigenous grapes. So, um, and I think you have a you have another red. Um, you, you have the Shad Capito as well. Is that yes, right? I do. Um, and 
Here we are. Very keen to, to talk about this as well, because you, you can easily have the impression, you know, because Saparavi is so, so much the main story as far as red wine and from Georgia is concerned, uh, you know, that all Georgian wines must be like that, very deep, very hearty, very rugby player-like. Well, here's something that absolutely isn't like that at all. I'll try and get it into the focal. Uh, I don't know if you can see there, but this is this is a much, much lighter, much, much clearer wine. It's almost like, you know, come to this wine after the Saparavi. It's almost like, you know, coming to a, a, a well-aged Barolo after a Madiron or something like that. A very different style of aromas. Um, delicate currants here. Some floral aromas even. Uh, you know, rose petal, something like that. And then on the palate, rather light, rather delicate, lots of finesse to it, sort of somewhere halfway between, uh, you know, Nebbiolo and Pinot. Doesn't quite have the tannic firmness of Nebbiolo, uh, doesn't quite have the sort of fruited uh, aerial grace of Pinot, but somewhere between those two. Uh, but, but with the distinctive Georgian, that sort of creeping incense-like incense exoticism coming into the flavours as well. Basically, the flavours are sort of currenty, but there's there's also that exotic note, that incense note, and that earthy note too as well. But within the, in a, what is in a very sort of light, midweight, um, poised, elegant, refreshing uh, style of red wine. And I I really agree. It, it reminds me of that. Italian sour sweet floral tension thing that goes on and actually it's very alluring and kind of tender you know it's just tender tender is a good word lovely Absolutely. variety um and the first time I had this variety so Chef Capito was another one of these varieties that nearly died out it was indigenous to Cartley and Chateau Mukrani were very key in basically bringing it back and um expanding their plantings and it's becoming more widely planted now but the first time i had it was actually sitting on their lawns so all this kind of restored aristocratic lawn under the trees with this beautiful you know um sort of um filigree curved you know wooden pagoda um with the trees around you and the breeze sort of you know playing with your hair and it's got that sort of legerity and, and fineness to it and um I think that and I really love showing people these wines because both in Cartley and then also in the west you do have these lovely bright dancing styles of red which are so lively and there's such a lovely counterpoint to the Saparavi which is such a crowd pleaser you know a big bold crowd pleaser and then you've got these actually very subtle and um, surprisingly subtle delicate wines um and yeah I think this is also drinking really well now mine mine is vintage 2019 and it's just got going I would say uh well I got 2020 so I'm one ahead but uh, but it's also I mean it's beautifully balanced and aged you don't get any sense of um of it being uh consumed too soon or anything like that I think also that it, it's it's a lovely example of the Cartley style in red wine. It's exactly what you expect from this slightly higher central site. Um, 
I think Chef Capito really suits uh, the Cartley style very well. So I'm sure we'll we'll hear more about that wine from Cartley in the future. Yes. And there's this the fairy tale the, property. This is the restored. <laughs> and you can see, so you've got the, the foothills of the mountains in the background. Um, this is the restored property. Um, but the vineyards are absolutely taken seriously, but you can go there. Um, and join in this wine festival, which is becoming a bit of an international thing. And this kind of level of aspiration, I think, is really important for Georgia. Um, so vineyards around the property and so on. And then I think we have um, we have one more wine. Yes, we do. This is actually a PDO wine, isn't it? It's our, our first yes. PDO wine today, Sarah, I think it, it might it be. It is, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I'll get it into the focal. You can see it's it's obviously based on Saparavi, so you get this wonderful depth of colour. Um, but this is Saparavi in a very different mood to certainly to the first one we tasted. Uh, it's a slightly older vintage. I've got 2020 again. Um, lots of finesse. The oak, the oak, I have to say, is done with more restraint on this wine than, than actually the previous wine, certainly aromatically. Perhaps that's a, really a reflection of the way that Saparavi can soak up oak in a way perhaps that, that Chef Capito can't. Um, lovely finesse and poise. Uh, almost, uh, you know, something that makes you again think of, nor of uh, northern Italian styles, I would say, to this wine. Um, a sort of uh, a, a secondary refinement to it. The primary fruit has really disappeared now. And what you're tasting is very much the the sort of uh, something it's worth saying about Saparavi. Uh, I, I noticed because I, I several years I've taken part uh, in in international Saparavi competitions. I've been judging Saparavi with lots of Georgians, uh, and I remember that you know I was always very fond of the really young ones, and they were they were very dismissive of those, and they hated giving high scores to a young Saparavi. But once they'd had some a little age, they they were ready to give them much much higher scores, and Saparavi actually ages remarkably swiftly. Um, within four or five years, it can completely spin on its heels and turn about and become a, a very different sort of variety. A very, it can acquire its secondary characteristics much more swiftly than, than many other varieties. So if, you're, if you are a little bit disconcerted by a young Saparavi, it's really worth seeking out something with a little bit more age. This is only 2020, but already you've, you've and because of the handling and so on, you've lost that primary uh, um, confrontational mode and it's got into this much more refined secondary style I think there's something about this style of Saparavi so Mukazani is a name to conjure with or it was you know the PDO was there because there was this great interaction with sight and it's almost like scratching a slightly sort of exotic Bordeaux itch or something you know it yeah, has that yeah. sort of that weight that rhythm through the palate um that kind of occasion it used to have to be aged um for longer than 12 months there was a, a higher minimum requirement and in fact that has recently been reduced for the pdo which i think is really intelligent because i agree you, you know what can happen you know there's there's an idea wasn't it that really comes from an old-fashioned way of making wine that then oh and then so you create an obdurate beast and then you have to soften it for three years in old oak you know and mm -hmm. um but you know funnily enough what we see in our market is that the pdo names like sinandali mukazani even naparuli they they have no 
power here. We find it much easier and retailers and importers are much more taken with the varieties, especially like Saparov is easy to say, no, Kisi is relatively easy to say. And um, But I do think that uh, it's important with to still tell the stories of these PDOs because it does plug into this more continuation of culture, of fine wine culture. I, I really love this producer, Vazi Subani Estate, overseen by Lado Rosanashvili, mm. who is the most amazingly dynamic guy and definitely someone you'd want on your Armageddon team. He's making very good wine there again in this restored um, estate. They also make a range called Georgian Sun, which is really jolly, like, um, well-priced, accessible styles of wine, which are well worth seeking out if you could find them. Um, but yes, there you go, Saparavi, the greatest variety you've never heard of. That's just, so. This is a, a map of the, um, the Mukuzani um, terroir. Another amazing source for information on Georgian wine, by the way, is this this source here, Georgian Wine Club. If you have a look at the Georgian Wine Club in, um, website led by Malchaz Karbadia, the most wonderfully um, cultured and, and uh, well-read expert, great resources and maps and so on there. Oh, do you want to, <laughs> do you want to wrap up us any more about this wine? And I'm, I'm conscious we've gone slightly over time. I'm sorry about that. But yeah, we, have, we have just have five questions. So perhaps we ought to quickly okay. jump through those. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, very informative and lots of great conversations in the chat, too. So I'm going to actually summarize some of the questions. Um, one that's come up a couple of times is, could Andrew expand on why he believes the Quivery wines show less varietal character than a classically styled wine? And that's been a theme, actually, throughout the chat and everything else. What is the key difference between Quivery and classical style? Well, the, the thing with Quivery is you're, you're suddenly coming across this wonderful contact it has with all of the fermentation, you're coming across the contact it has with its with its uh, skins and with its stems sometimes and with its pips as well. And all of these are building a layer layers of flavor and aroma into the wine of themselves, which have nothing to do with varietal character. When you have a white wine where varietal character is the main attraction, you're stripping away all of those things. You're taking them away um, in order to privilege or focus on the varietal character, if you like. In, in, in many ways, that's what classic white wine vinification is all about. Um, whereas in a Kvevri, that's not true. You're, you're building this wealth of aroma and flavor um, from, from these other things. Now, you know, it may be... I'd love to talk at some length to, to Georgian wine tasters about this, because it may be that this is simply my inexperience coming to the fore. And I'm noticing all of these other things uh, and tasting these other things, which they, have, they, as it were, would be able to see through. And they, they can see through to the varietal character as it's expressed via the Kfebri style. But, but speaking as a sort of innocent taster who is coming to these relatively late in life, that's, that's what I tend to notice. Okay. Um, so when I taste a Kvevri wine, I'm sort of assessing how successful it is as a, as a Kvevri wine. I'm perfectly prepared to believe that its success is predicated to some extent on variety in place. But what I'm sort of looking at is this extraordinary wealth, this, this motherly wealth that it's delivering to me. I want to revel in that uh, rather than think too much about actually what variety it's made from. Thank you for that. Sarah, any additions to that conversation? 
Quavery versus uh, classical? I think what Andrew, <coughs> when Andrew pointed out that you're dealing with a real additional richness of compounds, you know, phenolic acids, um, some other phenolic compounds that are part of the composition of amber wine. But there, when I tasted alongside Georgian tasters and we're tasting blind and tasting amber wines, and they'll be like, oh, this is kissy. You know, this is a Mitzvane. And I guess, like, imagine if you hadn't never tried red wine before and you were just given a whole flight of deep, intense red wines. Would you be able immediately to perceive Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah, you know, or would would that be, is it because it's part of our wine education and lexicon that we're brought up to recognize and then articulate these differences and these varieties that no one's even tried. So I think um, amber wine should not taste of the quivery. It It shouldn't be privileging oxidative characters or even, you know, microbiological characters over the purity of the wine. I think it's more to do with our interaction with the wine and our sort of, oh my God, look at this weird, you know, fifth element <laughs> or, you know, six art form that's come up that we're now dealing with. Um, yeah. <laughs> But there's Thank there's much that. more to say on this, and I hope you know. Yeah, we'll, there is, yeah. We'll <laughs> Perhaps another whole conversation, another another yeah, webinar. Yeah. Um, this question came up, and I know Sarah, you've been answering a bit of it. But for the good of the group, uh, serving temperatures on orange wines. What are your thoughts? Um, because I, I I loved your one response about it's it's yours to explore and treat it like a light red. Um, but what say you to the to the good of the group? How would you serve an orange wine? So I'm what really bad at remembering what what temperatures, <laughs> what, but I would probably serve it at around 13 to 14 degrees. So like a kind of, you know, a light bodied red mm -hmm. rather than a chilled fridge white, especially mm -hmm. amber wines from Kaketi, which have had full skin contact um, for six months, all of the skins, maybe some stems. If I were having um, an amber crevry wine from the West where they might have had, only have 20% of the skins, then I'd probably serve it a little more chilled or I might have a bit and think, oh, I might just stick this back in the fridge, you know, for a bit. Um, don't have it too cold. I would say it's better to treat it first like a Mr. Light Red and then chill it down. But, you know, the worst that can happen if you serve it too cold is you just have to cuddle it for a while and, you know, let it warm up. It, 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 it basically pronounces the tannins mm -hmm. and reduces the aromas. And I really love the aromas of Quevery wine, especially aged Quevery wine. I think they're really a massive part of the appeal. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Thanks for the question. Uh, all right. So Bart writes, are there any hybrid grapes in Georgia? What rootstocks are they using? And thank you for a great presentation. I haven't come across any hybrid grapes in Georgia, but, but I'm not sure if you were here for the first version of this webinar, the first episode of this webinar. Mm -hmm. did share a slide and talk about this research um, of which actually Lado Ozanishvili was one of the um one of the participants, where essentially 
it has shown that the genetics of Georgian varieties contain a relatively higher proportion of DNA from wild vines, from sylvestris, than um, the European cultivars, um, and that there's uh, it basically supports this hypothesis that Georgian vinifera was sort of one of the earliest branches of domestication from the wild vine. So I haven't come across any any deliberate hybrids. Um, and in terms of rootstocks, that's a really good question, which I would want to check my notes on before <laughs> answering. I think it's the usual suspect. I mean, uh, Georgia has Georgia has phylloxera. Um, I haven't come across any phylloxera free bits of Georgia, but there may well be some. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for that. And for anybody that's asking, the article that Sarah's referencing is available in the Wine Scholar Guild community. If you just type in Wines of Georgia, you'll see last week's recording, uh, any of the articles that she referenced. Uh, Lisa Granick's book uh, is also highlighted there as well, too. So thank you for that question, Bart. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Bud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevins. Until next week, slancha. Right now.